So I'm excited to share some of the stories I'm going to look at today because I feel like, you know, we've experiencing a little bit of the book of Acts. So that's awesome. The title of my message this morning is Faith Plays a Role. Faith plays a role. The role that faith can play in what we're praying for can be misguided. It can be oversold to the point that somehow or other we think the amount of faith we have is what's going to cause God to move. We can get into error in that direction, but we can also err the other way by praying and really not having any faith at all. And we need to realize that when you look through the scriptures, it's really impossible to deny that faith has a role when Jesus moved in his ministry, and I believe in the way the Lord moves today. So we're going to be looking at that. The scripture that you probably hear many times when you talk about faith is in Hebrews 11.1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. I'm going to talk just a little bit about faith and a little bit about that word hope. As before we look into the particular stories I want to look at today. Faith is an important part of so much of what the Lord does. Without faith, you will not be saved. Amen? So we cannot say that faith does not have a critical role. We must have faith. We must have faith and believe and trust in Jesus, in his word. It's a necessary ingredient of everybody's salvation. What is faith? It's having a trust. It's having a belief. It's having an assurance in our heart about who God is and what God says and that it's true. Faith is what dictates that we do not rely on our eyes to determine what truth is. Scripture says we walk by faith, not by sight. And if our eyes ever contradict or conflict with the word of God, guess what? The word of God is always right, always right. We need to. Now, hope, 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 I think, can be looked at and explained at least in two different ways. Kind of the way, let's say, worldly or culturally, they use the word hope. Or in the scripture I just read, faith is a confidence in what we hope for. There's a difference between, I believe, biblical hope and worldly hope. Hope can simply be an optimistic attitude that we have, that something's going to turn out the way that we want it to turn out. Um, Hope always speaks about the future, because if it's already there, we don't need hope, right? So it always speaks about the future and the hope that we have. But biblical hope depends upon faith. Biblical hope depends upon faith. When I believe and have hope in a biblical fashion, my hope is based on what I believe to be true from the word of God. Therefore, I have an assurance that that hope is founded on a solid foundation. Culturally, hope depends so much on other people and circumstances. I mean, I can hope for just about anything, right? I I hope this happens. I hope that happens. Gee, I, I hope I win the lottery if I ever buy a ticket. I hope. I hope. And all of those things 
you know, they may not be good or bad in and of themselves, but there is no confidence in them whatsoever. The key is hope based on faith. And when it comes to faith, and I've shared this little story before, but it's, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. We were on a mission trip in Russia, a city in northern Siberia called Radushny. And we had favor with the, the government because the young man that had invited us in, his mother was a secretary to the mayor of this city. And we're in the mayor's office. There's probably 8, 10, 12 of us there. And through the interpreter, the mayor asked <clears throat> Mike, me, you know, that's a problem with being called the pastor. You get the questions. He says, tell me what good your hope does. And I'm thinking, wow, what an opportunity. What a privilege. My hope does this for me. My hope does that for me. My hope does this for me. My hope helps me through. My hope, my, my faith, my faith, my faith. And finally, the guy that I was traveling with, his name is also Mike, Mike Karnasak. It was his ministry. He gets my attention. He goes, Mike, you're wrong. And I'm like, wow. And I, he was right. I was wrong. I was emphasizing the wrong thing. The important thing about faith is the object of our faith. The object of our faith is everything. You can believe in a rock and believe in a, in a tree or believe in another person with your whole heart, but it is not necessarily trustworthy in something that you can be competent in. It will change. The false religions of the world, almost all of them, if they do worship a God, they worship a dead God. We worship a living God. Our faith and the object of our faith is what matters and what makes a difference. That's why biblical hope is founded on the word of God. It's a foundation. When we see those promises in the word of God, we believe them by faith and we can have a certain hope that they will come to pass. So faith and hope are certainly connected in a, in a, in a powerful, powerful way. But we don't want to fall into that idea of cultural hope because it leads to disappointment, despair. And it actually can do damage to the, the whatever faith we might have if it's attached to anything other than Jesus. Hope. So we're going to look at a few stories this morning in the scriptures, in the Gospel of Mark, once again. Uh, chapters 5 and 6, primarily 4, 5, and 6. And I just encourage you, if you're not reading through this with us, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to do this. These stories are amazing. If I was in my right mind, I'd probably spend a week on each one instead of trying to do it all at one time. But I want to just make some certain points from these different stories that can really make application to our life. But as you read through these stories, read them slowly. Meditate on them. What's going on? What's happening? Look at the circumstance and situation. Don't just read it to say, I read it. One of these stories is only three, four verses long, if that. Powerful, powerful stories. So we're going to look at one. The first one, I'm actually going to go to chapter 6, and then we're going to back up. And this is when Jesus and his disciples returned to Nazareth. Now, the significance of that, for some of us that may not know, that was his hometown. That's where he was born and raised for approximately the first 30 years of his life. Trip to Egypt early in his life, but most of his life in Nazareth. And he comes back, and it's his hometown. 
And think about this, to give the people the benefit of the doubt. When Jesus left Nazareth, he was just Jesus, the son of a carpenter, the son of Mary. In some of their minds, maybe an illegitimate child. They didn't know for sure. And he leaves. And now he comes back. And as he comes back, at the very least, they consider him a rabbi with his own group of disciples following him. And he comes back into his little hometown. Not a very big hometown. And it's located in the area of Galilee. And to help us get an understanding of all of the details, how they maybe come together, Galilee is not a very big area. As a matter of fact, if we're standing right here in the middle of Galilee, it wouldn't go much past Tracy. It wouldn't make it hardly to Tyler. It would maybe get you to Marshall, but it wouldn't get you to Slayton. That's how small an area we're talking about. So these miracles and things that we're talking about as Jesus is going through Galilee, word would have spread. Wouldn't you probably agree if we were hearing wheelchairs being emptied because where people are walking, the dead being raised, demons cast out of people, if it was happening within that small area, we'd probably hear about it. That would be the case there, I believe. So Jesus comes back into Nazareth, into his hometown. And this is in chapter 6, the first few verses. And it says on Sunday, or on, not on Sunday for them, it would have been on Saturday, on the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and he begins to teach. And it tells us that the people are amazed. It's, my translation says, the people are astonished with these things. My translation first says things, and I'm trying to figure out what are all the things Is it the revelation? Is it what he's done? Because then it goes on and says the wisdom that he's teaching with. And then it actually says the miracles that had been taking place at his hand. And I believe when you look at it in the context there, they've heard about the miracles that have been taking place. And they're astonished at this guy. And they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And here's how they reacted in Mark 6 verse 3. They scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary. He's the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. And his sisters, they live right here among us too. They were deeply offended and refused to believe him. Some translations would say instead of deeply offended, they were caused to stumble. Why? Because of familiarity. Because they knew him. Because of that familiarity, they refused to believe. We're going to be talking about faith. And then we're going to be talking about unbelief. And I want us to distinguish because unbelief can be used again in Scripture, I believe, in two distinct ways, in two different circumstances. There is unbelief because I've never seen it before. I've never understood it before. Then there's unbelief that says, you're full of baloney. I don't believe it. They scoffed. They rejected him. That's the kind of unbelief that we see here. They have heard him teaching. They have heard about all the things that he was doing. They were astounded by his wisdom, and they were amazed by his miracles, 
But you're just Jesus. You just lived down the street a little ways in that little place, that dusty little house with your brothers and sisters, the carpenter's kid. They rejected him. And then verse 5 says, and I'm reading this from the New Living Translation, it says, And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. That part or that verse troubles me sometimes. What do you mean he couldn't do any miracles? It's pretty impressive. You lay your hands on the sick and they get healed. And I'm not thinking they're trying to differentiate between a healing and a miracle. What I think is, and this is Mike thinking, so take it carefully. They didn't believe. Why would I bring anybody to this guy if I don't believe anything about him? I think it may have been that he didn't do any miracles because their unbelief, their rejection of Jesus was so powerful. Why bring anybody to him? There's a few sick people that came straggling up. I'm going to heal them. They're here. They have some faith. But the rest, why would you bring him? He didn't do any miracles. However you interpret that, it obviously limited what Jesus did because of an unbelief that rejected him. Not because of an unbelief, because it was something they hadn't experienced or knew, but because they rejected him when the truth was standing right before them. In verse 6, I don't know if I put that on there or not. But in verse 6, it says, Jesus wondered, marveled, stood amazed at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. Jesus only uses that word in the Gospels twice. He marveled at the unbelief of these people. I think it was significant because these were Jewish people. They should have understood. They knew what he had done. They'd heard about him. They'd heard him preach, and they were standing there amazed. This is the most awesome preacher we've ever had at this little church in Nazareth. But they rejected him. And Jesus, it says, he marveled. He wondered. He stood amazed at their unbelief. He used this word one other time in the scriptures. It was in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 9. This is the story about the centurion's servant being healed. A Gentile. Someone who had no business believing anything at this time. It says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. What did he hear? The centurion said, Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. I understand authority. I am one in authority. I have those soldiers under my command. I tell them to do it. They go do it. Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house. You just speak the word and it will be done. And it says, Jesus wondered. He marveled at this belief. He said, I'm turning to the crowd that was following me. He said, I tell you this, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I haven't seen this kind of faith in the Jewish people, but yet this centurion, this Gentile, he believes. And Jesus was in wonder and stood in amazement at his belief. Does Jesus ever marvel 
at our belief. Does he ever marvel at your belief or my belief? I believe Jesus probably marvels at our beliefs in those times when we are going through extreme suffering. And there would be every opportunity in the flesh to give up. But yet we believe. We believe by faith that Jesus is who he is and who he said he is and and what he's done. I believe when people from the roughest backgrounds, a past that is unbelievable, they grew up in a home where there was zero opportunity or encouragement, and that person comes to Christ because of believing faith. I think Jesus just marvels at that. Heaven cheers at that. I believe also when people give up, I'm sometimes so amazed by this, they give up all their comforts, all their securities to respond to the call of Jesus on their life. I think he marvels at those kinds of faith. Wouldn't we want him to marvel at our faith in those kinds of situations? But why not every day and every situation? Or does he marvel at our faith? I hope not. When a person grows up, a young person grows up in a loving home with loving parents, they pray together as a family. They study the scripture together as a family. They have devotions together as a family. They go to church and hear sound preaching as a family. And then that young person as an adult rejects Christ. And Jesus stands in amazement and marvels at their unbelief because of every opportunity was there. Or when people like us may sit under what I hope is sound teaching, whether it's in Bible class, in church, in our home groups, we sit under this sound teaching. We have the blessings of fellowship with believers all around us. And yet we don't take advantage of that We don't want to surrender our life to Christ. We don't want to allow him to be Lord of our life. With all the opportunities we have, all the things that we can experience, we keep him out here. And I believe Jesus might marvel at our unbelief. That's certainly not the kind of amazement or marveling that we want when Jesus looks at us. The people of Nazareth rejected him. They should have known better. Their unbelief was an act of their will. We're going to jump to another story. We're going to go back a little bit into chapter 4 first. Got to give a little background, a little context here. Jesus and the disciples, you probably know the story when Jesus calmed the sea. Remember now, these are fishermen. These are professional fishermen. And Jesus has been speaking. He says, let's go to the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And they get in the boat, and Jesus is exhausted from all the ministry and all that he's doing, so he falls asleep. And why not? These are professional fishermen. But all of a sudden, the storm comes up, the winds are blowing, the waves are crashing in, the boat's filling up with water, and Jesus is sleeping. And the professional fishermen are scared for their lives. And they go to Jesus and they wake him up. And they say, Lord, don't you care what's going on here? 
And Jesus probably wipes the sleep from his eyes and says, wind, be still. Calm comes. And the disciples hear those words about unbelief. They didn't reject Jesus or his gifts or his ministry. They'd never seen anything like this before. Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that this guy, even though we've been with him a little while, could stand up and just speak a couple of words, wind be still, and even nature listens to him. Unnatural unbelief, if you would. So this is what they've just experienced, which brings us to the beginning of chapter 5. They had crossed the sea during the night, may have been early morning, when they arrived at this other side. But in Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 20, we see a number of things take place. The first, it's as if in my picture, in my mind, when I read that scripture, they come to the seashore, they get out of the boat. And typically you're going to walk uphill a little ways. And in my mind, I see this guy looking from the top of the hill and he sees Jesus. Not your average guy. This guy is carrying a load of demons, a legion of demons, if you would. And it says he sees Jesus from a distance. And what does he do? It says the man runs to Jesus and kneels at his feet. And Jesus commands the demons to come out of this man. And the demon then starts to negotiate. The demon identifies him accurately as the the son of God, the son of God Almighty. Now, people, theologians, if you would, disagree on whether why the man ran to the feet of Jesus. I am of the persuasion, and you can come to your own conclusion. I am of the persuasion at that moment when this man saw him, if the demon was going to control where he was going, he went and ran to Jesus. He'd have ran back into the tombs and hid because he knew who Jesus was. I believe God with the invisible hand of God, for a moment gave that man some clarity and ability. And that man, not even knowing what he was doing, but knowing he was desperate, ran and bowed at the feet of Jesus. But yet when Jesus spoke to him, the demons spoke through this man. And to me, the story about the demons negotiating, being cast into the pigs, 2,000 head of hogs, and the hogs running down and drowning in the sea, um, it's a great story. I encourage you to read it. I'm not going to emphasize that part of it. But what I do want to emphasize is the response we see of three different people or groups of people. Jesus sets this man free, and when it describes this man, he's living in the tombs. The dead people outside the city in caves, in the tombs, and here's where this guy is living. That's where this legion of demons has taken him to where the dead live or the dead abide. It says that chains couldn't hold him. He'd break the chains. No man was strong enough to subdue him. They could not control him. He was screaming, running around, undressed, Day and night, screaming and hollering and and hurting himself. 
with the rocks. And yet this man came and knelt at the feet of Jesus. Jesus finally asked him his name, and he says, Legion. Now, a legion can be a lot of people. Roman legion was at least usually over 6,000 people, 6,500. Whatever there were, there were a lot of demons. I'm pretty sure there were at least 2,000 because 2,000 pigs went in the water. And Jesus just simply spoke the words. And what I want us to see is the response. The people that witnessed this went back into the city and told them of what they had seen and told them about 2,000 hogs drowning in the water. And they rush out to see what had taken place. And what do they see? They see this man who had been demon-possessed. Chains couldn't hold him. No one could subdue him in agony and screaming all the time. He's sitting clothed at the feet of Jesus, completely delivered. And what do they do? Jesus, would you please leave the region? Get away from us. Get out of here. Go. This amazing miracle. They weren't concerned about the man whose life had been changed in an instant by the power of God. They were scared and nervous. Their economy might be being threatened. Whatever their reasons. And Jesus left. That was the response of the crowd, the people. The response of the man. He's not only sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is getting up to leave at the request of the people who rejected him. And he's pleading with him. He's pleading with Jesus, please, may I come with you? His life had been changed in an instant and he was ready to give his entire life and follow Jesus. Should be the response. I'd expect it. And then we see the response of Jesus. And I'm sure with all the love that is in him, he looked at this man and said, no, I want you to go home. And I want you to go to your people. And I want you to tell them what God has done. I want you to tell them of his compassion and his mercy. This was a Gentile state, if you would. Go and tell them. Go and tell others that their life may be transformed and that their life may be changed. One of the points I want us to walk away from that story as you read it is to realize this. Jesus and his disciples were on the other side of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they traveled across the sea in the midst of a storm. Jesus calmed the storm. I'm sure the disciples were not getting any sleep the rest of the night talking about what Jesus has just did. And they get to the other side and Jesus ministers to one person. One person. And they turn around and get back in the boat and go to the other side. We need to understand that one person, you, are valuable to Jesus. One person. And not only that, are you valuable? There is nothing beyond the reach of his power. This man was desperate and hopeless, and sometimes we feel hopeless and desperate. And we believe the lie that somehow Jesus, God, doesn't even know what we're going through. 
If he crossed the sea in the middle of a storm for one man and set him free of over 2,000 demons, you and I are valuable to him. And whatever we're going through, whatever we're going through, he will go through it with us, even if he doesn't remove us from it at that particular instant. So Jesus goes back across the sea, and he doesn't even get past the beach. The crowds are already there. And right away, in the midst of the crowds, there's a person named Jairus. And he's not just anybody, any Jew. He's a worker at the synagogue, at the temple. And he comes to him, and he says, Jesus, my daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. Once again, this guy's desperate. I would almost say hopeless, but he came to Jesus. So there is a hope here based on Jesus. But he's desperate. Now, I'd like to think that we wouldn't always have to wait till we're desperate before we turn to Jesus. That should be our first call. Not our last. But this man is desperate. And he comes to him. And immediately Jesus says, okay, let's go. And they start heading towards this person's home. This big mass of people, it's almost like a mass of people moving as one. Can't hardly move because you're getting jostled and bumped. And all of a sudden the story of Jairus and his child is interrupted by a woman. It says she has an issue of blood. She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. Now, as if that's not bad enough, in that culture, during that time when a woman was bleeding, you were considered unclean. You were kind of like an outcast. You needed to do certain things before you could even come out amongst the people, go to the synagogue, go to the temple. And it tells us she'd been this way for 12 years. It says she had spent all her money and she had endured, and I thought that was an interesting way of putting it, she had endured all the physicians. The money was gone. She was desperate. And she says to herself, if I can only touch the hem of his garment... I will be healed. Filled with faith in a desperate situation. And she goes, works her way through that crowd. And if they knew her, they wouldn't want her anywhere near them because she is unclean, ceremonially unclean as a Jewish woman. And she gets her way through the crowd and she reaches out to the hem of his garment. I will get well. An interesting aside, every time you read, I will get well on these stories that I've been sharing, the literal translation is, I will be saved. I will be saved. She reaches out to Jesus' garment. And depending on which gospel you're reading the story in, she's healed, just like that. The lady knows it. The issue of blood is stopped. She can feel it. It says she feels she's completely healed. 
And Jesus stops in the middle of the crowd and says, who touched my garment? Oh, dude, I got caught. Imagine the emotions of this woman at that moment. She knows she's been healed of an issue of blood for over 12 years. She's healed in an instant, completely healed. And now I got this whole crowd around me. And Jesus wants to know who touched my garment. And the disciples are like, Jesus, are you nuts? Everybody's touching you. We're bumping into everybody. We can't even take a step without bumping into people. Jesus knew what this lady knew before she touched his garment. Jesus healed by the virtue of the power of who he was as the son of God. She knew the garment wasn't magic. It was just a point of contact. And she believed if all I do is touch it, I will be healed. And then it tells us that just like the demoniac, when Jesus said, who touched me? She went to him and knelt before him, bowed before him. And then it says in an interesting way, she told him all the truth. You can just about let that slide by you until you remember and remind yourself what all the truth would have been. Here's this Jewish lady sharing all this very intimate stuff in front of all these people. But she didn't care. She was just filled with joy and thanksgiving because Jesus had healed her. And then Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. I believe that was a, an announcement of sort to the people even standing around that Jesus is terrifying. You're healed. You are no longer ceremonially unclean. You are healed. Go in peace. And she did. And then immediately we go back to the scene with Jairus and his daughter. It's just like this little, oh yeah, this was kind of cool, right in the middle of this. It's an amazing story. And it says in the scripture that no no sooner than when Jesus quits speaking to the woman, he overhears somebody coming from Jairus' house and basically says, don't bother him. Your daughter died. She's dead. Why would you bother the master anymore? And immediately Jesus overhears and intervenes. Immediately he says these words. Do not be afraid. Only believe. And again, if you study the grammatical context of that verse, what it really says is, do not be afraid. Just keep believing. Just keep believing. Somebody just came to me and told me my daughter was dead. Just keep believing. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith in Jesus. We walk by faith. Jesus went to the house, and he only took Peter and James and John with him of the disciples. And when he gets to the house, and you just got to understand what happens when somebody dies in the Jewish culture. I mean, if there's not enough people to weep and wail, they hire people to weep and wail. They're professional weepers and wailers. 
And it says Jesus and his disciples are coming up and they are weeping and they are wailing. And I love my translation says, and they're making all kinds of commotion. She's dead. And Jesus comes onto this chaotic scene outside their house and the words out of his mouth were not what they would have expected. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And the people laughed at him, scorned him, and made fun of him. I tried to put myself in the position of Jairus at that moment. I mean, it took everything I could to believe Jesus when he says, now let's go. And now I see all the wailers and the mourners, and they probably understand what a dead person looks like. And then Jesus just says, hey, don't worry about it. She's sleeping. Come on inside. Let's go in the house. The rest of you professionals, you stay out there. You're scorning me. You're mocking me. You're making fun of me. You stay out there. I'm going to take mom and dad and my three disciples, and we're going in. Jesus takes them in. And he goes through this long process and procedure. No, he doesn't. He basically says, little girl, arise. And she gets up. And Jesus said, I think she's hungry. Get her some food. Amazing stories. That if we let ourselves slip into it, we look at them almost as fairy tales. But they're not. They are true events that happen to real people. And it gives us insight not only into the people and what faith looks like, real faith looks like, what real hope looks like. It gives us a great idea of who Jesus is. The compassion, the power of the word, his words. Little girl, rise. A dead girl gets up. Three words. A woman with an issue of blood, just touches his garment and is healed. A man with thousands of demons, he commands the demons to come out, and they come out. He speaks to the wind and tells it to quit blowing. Wouldn't you like that one some days in southwest Minnesota? Wind, be still, and nature itself listens. This is the Jesus. This is the God who serves we serve and who loved us so much he gave his life for us. I want to leave you with these points. The object of our faith is everything. When you go through these stories, the object of their faith is Jesus. And for us, looking back, we also see the power of his word. Knowing the word, being in the word, speaking the word, The word is powerful. It changes lives. It's true and it's powerful. Just as a a caution, you know, there's nothing wrong with going somewhere where God is moving. Nothing wrong with that. A number of us here, myself included, went up to uh, Eden Prairie when the North Georgia revival was there a couple, three weeks ago, whatever it was. Nothing wrong with that. But sometimes we get this mindset like the people of Nazareth. Why would I come up and get prayer? It's just Mike. It's just Odessa praying with people. 
just Cindy. We all know Cindy. Why would we go up to them? Who are they? I can tell you who we are. We're nobody. We're nobody except Jesus by the Spirit of God lives and dwells in us. And we have been commanded by the Lord in the Word of God to pray for the people that are sick, that are heavy burdened, that are carrying burdens they shouldn't carry, those that are mentally distressed. It just says pray for them. And if we get this idea that uh, I, I know them, I'm a better person than Mike. I'm not going to him or Ryan or whoever it is. Don't fall into the trap of the Nazarenes. The one is important. You are important. And your situation is not hopeless. There is nothing wrong with becoming desperate. God in his compassion and his mercy hears our cries. Tells us he collects our tears in a bottle. They're so precious to him. But he will come for the one. He came for each one of us that responded to him. Whatever the lies are, you are important to Jesus. That's worth the price of admission. With more than that, it was free here, wasn't it? No one, no circumstance is too difficult. When it comes to what we consider hopeless or what we consider impossible, they may be that to us. But Jesus raised the dead with three words, for goodness sakes. He created all that exists by the spoken word. He created the universe, the stars, the moons, everything that we see, every plant, every animal, out of what? Nothing. He spoke it and it came into being. What's impossible to us is an opportunity for him to show you his love, his mercy, his compassion, and reveal his glory. The scripture that I close with today is in Luke 18, very familiar to many of us. What's impossible with man is possible to God. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you so much for your word, the truth of your word, that it's trustworthy, that we can stand on your word. I thank you for Jesus. Again, Lord, we can't comprehend how much we owe to Jesus in this life. I pray, God, that we would learn from these examples that you have given us to strengthen us, to encourage us, that you love us more than we can understand. No matter what we're going through, you're there with us. You will watch us, walk us through it, deliver us from it. That your love for us comes with no strings attached. Lord, I pray that Our faith grows and is strengthened when we see these testimonies from your word about real people with real needs in desperate situations. And Lord, I pray that we would be like that demoniac when you delivered him, that all we would want to do is be with you, to follow you, to know you better. I also pray this morning, Lord, that you watch over us, protect us. We thank you that you do, that you provide for us. 
I pray that wherever we go and whatever we do this week, you're, we walk with the confidence of knowing that we're never alone. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. And Holy Spirit, we pray you would also go before us and be upon us. And Father, we pray that every opportunity is an opportunity to share the love of Jesus, the truth of the gospel, the hope that's in Christ with those that we come in contact with. And that all these things would be for your glory and for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.